Welcome to Snares Book Prep Uncovered, the podcast where we talk to staff, to pupils and sometimes to parents to understand more about life at the school. Each episode, I'm joined by Ralph Dalton, head teacher at the school. And today in this episode, we're talking about the school journey, how children progress and develop through the school years, whether it's right that children should stay in a prep school until the end of year six, the idea of reinventing oneself, very interesting, and much, much more. But we also start off talking by accident about optimism, pessimism, expectations versus experience. This part's nothing at all to do with school life, but it's quite good fun. That's all coming up in this episode, so come with me now as we speak to the head teacher. It's Ralph Dalton. Ralph, good morning. Thanks for being here on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, Simon. Yes, how are you? I'm very well indeed. Are you are you ever not very well? Because you you always seem to be very well. You always seem to be a cheerful person, even though <laughs> I know that you said to me offline that you tend to be slightly glass half empty from time to time. But nevertheless, you always come across to me as being a cheerful half glass half full kind of person. Well, I'm more that um, far side car that said, hey, I ordered a cheeseburger rather than glass half full or empty. <laughs> no, I mean, well, yes, I mean... <laughs> It's one of those things, isn't it? Nobody wants to tune into a podcast where I go, well, actually, Simon, I'm really miserable today. I'm finding <laughs> I'm finding it hard to sustain the energy. Uh, <laughs> nobody wants that. No, but equally, I mean, everybody does have days from time to time where they are feeling a bit, a little bit drained or whatever. Yeah. No. I mean, I'm I'm a. <laughs> I, I was going to, I was going to joke that. I'm a bit bipolar, but I'm, you know, I don't think you should joke about using that sort of phrase because that's quite an extreme thing. But I'm this sort of very odd mixture of I'm optimistic generally in my thinking, but quite pessimistic in my expectation. I don't know if that makes any sense, but yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense, actually. And to me, that that's a perfect combination because I was talking to someone about this recently, about the definition of happiness and happiness. You can equate to being the experience minus the expectation, and it's the bit in between which creates the happiness. So, if your expectation of, you know, going to uh, going to a restaurant that has no good reviews, and you go in there and you have a fantastic meal, then you'll be super happy. If you go to a restaurant at the Savoy, for example, your expectation is already super happy. So, if you come away from there anything less than than super happy, sorry, your expectations are super high. So, if you come away anything less than super happy then actually you're disappointed. So you're, 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 you're not happy. Yeah, no, I think I, that makes absolute sense. And so I guess what I should do then is just sort of downplay the whole Snaresbrook prep experience. It's like, oh, no, it's, it's all right. Coming to Snaresbrook <laughs> prep, it's okay. Don't expect too much. Because that's the problem, isn't it? If you, you end up just, you've got to be really wary that you don't have low expectations. You don't start enforcing low expectations to try and artificially inflate the happiness mm. Mm. i think that's so i, I think I, I quite like the sort of beginner's mind aspect to this in the sense that i tend to just try and treat the moment as the moment mm -hmm. not come to it in advance like with expectation and not dwell mm -hmm. on it in the past but have it in the moment which I'm not very good at. Mm. I mean, I used to say that I used to live my life at least three times, but most of those were in, in my head in advance. And then <laughs> after the event, as I'd, as I'd ruminate on what had happened, you know, and how I could have done it better. And then, you know, mm. and I sometimes don't even know if I've said things to people in real life or whether I've just said them in my head. So, mm. Um, mm. but yes, I, that's very true. That's very true. You know, um, your expectations really do adjust your happiness, don't they? 
Yeah, although some people do incorrectly translate having a low expectation of something as being pessimistic in the first place. But you can be optimistic about your situation, but it's just not having such a high expectation of things that you end up being disappointed. Oh, interesting. Okay, because I've always... And there is a book um, that I did start to read on how to train yourself to be optimistic. And actually, it's one of the values that I, I spoke to the children about in one of our assemblies, because I think optimism is a really important attitude to carry into life. So you're going to go into situations where you're not sure what the outcome is going to be. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you don't adopt the attitude, right, this will be okay, or I can do this if I do X, Y, and Z, or, and I don't mean a, an ill-considered sort of optimism. You know, you've got to think out a plan. You've got to be sensible about it. But then you have to be optimistic that that plan is going to work. Otherwise, you just end up thinking, there's no point in any of this. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I saw this with my own parents. They were constantly... So my dad was quite entrepreneurial. My mum was quite cautious, let's say, because of the way her family had lost a lot of money being entrepreneurial. And I'd hear them in the front of the car talking about, you know, my dad saying, oh, you know, we could do this as a business or he always wanted to start a business. And she would always say, well, that won't work or there's always this problem or there's, you know, they always saw the negatives. And I think I think that mm. they didn't have that sense of optimism. It's good to spot the challenges, but not see them as mm -hmm. impediments. That's that's the sort of attitude I try and adopt. But it's very much a learnt attitude. I think naturally I'm a bit kind of like, oh, it's not worth it. So maybe then it's a case of having a low expectation of things that we can't control, but a high expectation of ourselves so that we step up to it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's certainly I'd agree there's something in that. Well, they always talk about when you sort of listen to people talk about performance or elite performance, they talk about control the controllables. You know, so mm. you, you, you ascertain what, what you can control and to what degree you can control it. Um, you look at, you analyse which of those well, I always think you look at which of those are going to have the most effect. So the 80-20 rule, you know, 80% mm -hmm. of the outcome is going to come from 20% of those. Hopefully, mm -hmm. if you're really lucky, the 20% that are going to make the biggest difference are within your control, you know, mm -hmm. and you focus all your effort on those ones, you know, to the best of your ability. And then, mm. yeah. Um, yeah. and also I think taking the, so I always really struggled sort of as a, a child or as a young adult with the element of perfection. Mm -hmm. Perfection comes into this conversation too, I think. If you're willing to live with the discomfort of things not being perfect and mm -hmm. the discomfort of constantly striving to make them better, mm -hmm. then it's okay that you, that, that helps you be more optimistic because you think mm -hmm. I'm going to set out in the direction that should be successful, but I realize I will adapt as different mm -hmm. opportunities arise. But if mm. you never set mm. out, those other pathways don't ever appear. Mm. So I think that can, mm. that's, that's, again, another benefit of optimism. I'm super impressed that you, you, that you wrote a, that, sorry, that you read a book on, on optimism. I remember reading a book one time on speed reading because I, I realized that my reading was very slow. So I bought this book on speed reading, but I never finished it because it was taking so, so long to read. <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> I never finished it. <laughs> Therefore, I never applied any of the learning in there. I, I think I would be very similar. So what I do is I will often listen to either YouTube or watch YouTube videos or listen to audiobooks on one point, one and a quarter times speed or one and a half times speed. 
by the time it gets two times speed, I find it... Mm. It's passing you by. You're not actually hearing it. Well, yeah, I just find the sound of it less pleasant, you know, but if you... It's certainly one and a quarter, you can still keep a lot of the intonation and the, the, the pause, so the emphasis mm. still comes through. As you speed it up, you lose... Well, I do anyway. But um, mm. so there, so that's you know if you can't if you can't finish the book on speed reading, just um, get the audio book and speed that up. <laughs> Brilliant. My top tip. Yeah, I like it. Ralph, what are we talking about today? Well, really, we're looking at the school journey, aren't we? Yeah, I thought it was um, one of the questions that often new parents will ask when uh, they come to see the school is they try and sort of ascertain what their child's journey will look like, you know, in the sort of eight years they're going to spend at the school. So I thought it'd be a good idea for us to sort of chat about that and uh, see mm. where that takes us. Well, I think it's a great thing to talk about because clearly the difference between a child when they join right down at the bottom end of school to if they stay in school the whole way through to how they are when they leave aged 11. I mean, the difference between well, eight years of, 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 of difference between age three and age 11 is, is a huge difference, isn't it? So your teaching staff must see some beautiful changes in those children as they go through the school. Oh, undoubtedly. I think it's I think the sort of communal memory is awash with those children that achieve things that you never thought were possible, you know. And you see it, you see it on a, a very small level, you know, just they, they start. So those who don't know our school, the, the children sort of walk across the forecourt every morning, you know, and they start at sort of three and a half years old and they're tiny and oh, their jackets are oversized and they've got these PE bags <laughs> that they're juggling and and they, they tentatively, you know, they, they tentatively take steps, you know, under these. I don't know if anybody sort of remembers some of those old animations like Pugwash where the feet moved underneath they sort of go up and down oh, oh, yeah. underneath yeah. like a sort of what, you know, just like a rectangle. Well, that's mm. what they look like. These feet just very tentatively walk along and they're, they're, everything's out of mm. proportion in terms of like the bags are too big for them. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you then see them the next year and they stride across and they don't look back and they, you know, they, you know, they say goodbye to their parents straight away. And just that confidence, um, you can just start seeing develop and you see it. You know, in the classroom, they start telling you more. Or Again, you know, with me on the gate, they'll start telling me what they did at the weekend. You know, I always say, well, how was your, you know, how was your weekend? Or, you know, how was last night? Or, you know, how are you feeling today? And and that starts mm. off with just, you know, they, they I just nod their head or sometimes you get good. But gradually it sort of, you know, they start telling you things. And then, mm. you know, you see them. By the time they get to year six, you'll see them. Some of them will walk to school on their own or they'll walk to school. Mm. You know, they'll pick up you know, a, gr a group of them will pick each other up as they go along. So two or three of them will come through the gates together and you see them chatting away and mm. you see the, the relationships between them develop. Because that's the other mm. thing, you know, they would have been with each other for such a long time and been through so many experiences that have bonded them together. And in such an intimate setting, they really do become a bit more like family, I think, than maybe just, you know, your average school cohort. Um, so you're right. Mm. It's lovely to see the changes. Ralph, sometimes, of course, children might leave before they get to, to age 11. Maybe the parents want them to go to a different school because then they can start when when they're age seven or something like that. Now, if I was to ask you the question, do you think children should stay in school until age 11? I'm going to presume that you'd say yes. But putting aside for one moment the fact that you're the head teacher of a school where children do go up to age 11, tell me what your real genuine thoughts are on that. So just to sort of preface my answer, I do, I would always respect 
every family's journey. Every family's journey is different. Everybody's got, you know, there's, there's different life pressures going on that sometimes we make decisions, you know, that, that, that suit our families and our family stories. But from a sort of school point of view or an educational point of view, the best thing, so I think there are several things about, my thoughts in terms of staying to 11 are, in no particular order, firstly, I worry about a child being in the same school from the age of four. So some of these through schools will start at four, some at seven. But just mm. being in one school from the age of four seems like a long time to me. I don't, it's more an emotional thing than mm. the logic. Secondly, I think there is the option at 11 to reinvent yourself. If you've gone to a through school, you're going through with the rest of your cohort and you don't get the opportunity to reinvent yourself. And I think that can be important, you know, because, you know, you will have a, a role within that cohort that you were at primary school with. And that's, that's fixed then again for your secondary school. So I think the opportunity to reinvent is important. Um, mm -hmm. Thirdly, if you go all the way through a school, you don't really do that transition. The next time you're going to make a transition is going to be at university. Mm -hmm. So if you've only ever made the transition at four or at seven and then the next one you're going to do is at university you haven't had that experience of fitting into a new group bonding with a new group of people mm. going to a different setting completely the you know the the anxiety that will be uh, that will come with moving and you won't be able to call back on an experience where you go okay well you know i moved school you know i moved secondary schools and i was worried about that but that turned out okay you won't mm. have that previous experience so I think that's something that I think about. Because we develop ourselves, don't we, by stepping out of our comfort zones. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, whilst these might not be educational, you know, they're not, they're not on the curriculum, but they are growing, they are life skills. Mm. So, mm. you know, I think that's important. I think also I think the most important thing in terms of secondary school is if the child is brought into the secondary school. Because again, and I'm sort of talking about the schools that we feed, the, mm -hmm. the, the six schools we mainly feed are brilliant schools and they all have the same onward pathways generally and children mm. do very successfully at these schools. So the biggest question to me really, I think, is well, what makes that difference? And I think it's the child. I mean, I don't know about your mm. secondary sort of experience, but mine, certainly those children that, you know, that were really brought into their education did better than those that weren't. You know, mm. I don't think anything else... You know, parents, the older a child gets, the less influence the adults around them have on that education, mm. I think. It becomes more about the individual. Mm. So, again, if you look at, OK, what motivates an individual? Well, I think one of those things is sense of belonging. And so, again, the question that I always start to think about is, well, what would influence one sense of belonging and I think choice would influence one sense of belonging you know if you thought to yourself oh well I picked this school you know I have some agency in this again I think it's an, another important value to instill in our children that they mm -hmm. have choice that they have agency that mm -hmm. they you know they are going to make big decisions and they are going to have to make the consequences work for them and they can mm -hmm. make them work for them so I think that element of choice at 11 is important I don't think at seven really a child is very conscious of that because they're doing it more when they're sort of five and six, um, really, than yeah. when they're seven. They might move at seven, but the decisions are being made when they're a lot younger. And certainly, I 
I don't think anybody would argue that there's much agency at four. No, no. So tell me how that looks then with the year sixes, with, with the 11 year olds at the top end of school and the conversations that you see happening regarding their choice of school. And, you know, like you say, as the child gets older, you know, they're included more so in that decision making. So I imagine correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that that most of the time it's it's not entirely the child's choice at that age. Whereas if somebody was leaving a school at the end of year 11, so age 16, and trying to think about where to go and study A-levels, that may be sort of 90% down to the child. But how does that actually look for a, for a year six pupil at Snaresbrook? I think it's important to say, I don't think it should solely be the pupils. I think it still should be, you know, the parents should have a lot of influence in that. But, you know, so the conversations are generally around, think about you as a child, think about, and, you know, we say to the parents, think about your child. What interests do they have? And are they, A, are those opportunities available at the school? And are they recognised and celebrated at the school? Harder to ascertain is, are they celebrated and recognised by the pupil body? Because, again, I think as children get older, again sense of belonging their peer group become more important to them than the adults around them much as we mm. might not want that to be the case i think it mm. is mm. so again you know and, and and you know so you've got obviously got your academic sort of side of school but you've got your sporting side your arts your drama your music so you know try and get a feel for is your child going to have the opportunity to do something they love doing again is your child, in whatever area it might be, is your child trying to perform at the elite level or are they just looking to take part and enjoy it? Because different schools have different takes on it. So, for example, sport at one school might be very inclusive sport for all, which is great. If you love playing sport, but you're not, you know, you're not exceptional, that means you're going to be in a team. You're going to feel good about yourself. You're going to get opportunities every week to play. Your contribution is going to be valued. If you go to a school where that um, sport is done at a more elite level, you'll tend to find it becomes more of the culture of the first 11 or the first 15. The only mm. results that get reported are the first 15 results or, you know, netball might, you know, girls sport was often underrepresented in some of these, you know, so you have to think about, I think that's something that you can think about both as a child and as a parent. And then I also with, I also think it's important to think about where you fit academically in the cohort, because I strongly believe you want to be in the upper average part. If you are an outlier at either end, um, it's really difficult for schools to meet your needs on a lesson in minute in minute out basis, because, you know, everything we do, anytime we present any kind of information, I don't just mean teachers, but if you think about any kind of presentation you've given, you'll present to the middle of the room. You'll think, right, what do, what do most people know here? And, you know, what's mm. the next step? And you can you can start to differentiate either side of that fairly easily. But as you get to the outliers, it becomes incredibly difficult. Mm. And again, mm. from a pupil's point of view, their self-esteem is important here, because if you're in that upper upper average bit, then you've got those children that you can aspire to and be competitive mm -hmm. with. But you're still you still feel good about yourself because you're still doing well because you compare mm. you, people do compare themselves to their cohort. They shouldn't, but they do. If you are always at the, well, maybe I should say you've got to think about your child and how they respond to being in different positions. So, for example, really competitive, lazy, I was going to say boys because it 
or quite often is that mm-hmm. quite often do really well if they're at a really good if they're at the bottom of a really academic profile because it pushes them on oh. whereas mm. if they're at the top of the academic profile but they're lazy then they kind of go mm-hmm. oh okay everything's fine i don't mm-hmm. need to work too hard mm-hmm. you know because they're mm-hmm. getting what they need without really being so those are the sort of uh, those are the conversations we'd have more with parents but that's I, I do think thinking about where your child fits into the academic profile is important within the schools that we're sort of recommending children go to simply because all those schools will meet the needs of all those children brilliantly the thing that's going to make the difference mm-hmm. is how the child feels so mm-hmm. those that, that's sort of yeah those are the conversations that i'd or those are the thoughts in my head when i'm having conversations about children with parents it's interesting you mentioned there about how the child feels because i was going to ask you about happiness within children and I feel like this is a slightly loaded question because my children are older now. They're at their upper end of teenage years. And if I think back to when they were younger at school, well, if I think about their whole educational journey, and if someone asked me when were they happiest, and I've never asked them this, so I can't be sure on this, but, but, I'm, but I'm 90% sure, then I'd, I'd say that when they're in year five, year six, in a school which finished at the end of year six for them, that's probably when they were most happy because they'd been in that school for a good chunk of their life, but they were coming to the end of that part of their educational journey before moving on to another school. And, and of course, then they went through the uncomfortableness, stepping out of your comfort zone uh, in joining a new school. But, but, but they were, you know, so they developed there, of course. But when they're at the, you know, year five, year six, they're, that's probably their happiest part of their journey. How do you see that? And forgive me, sort of influencing your answer there. I'm hoping that I don't, but I just wanted to give a bit of context. But how do you see that with children at Snaresbrook? That's interesting. I mean, they tend, I mean, the vast majority of our children tend to, I was going to say, be happy every day. You know, certainly on the surface of it, they are always smiling. There's, they, you know, we get very few issues where children are unhappy. I mean, obviously it does happen, but they tend to be, fairly temporary situations i mean mainly because you know we don't we don't allow it we work really hard to try and solve those issues where if there's anything going on because children's happiness you know if they're not happy they're not going to to learn i mean i think there's like they they always seem really happy in in they seem happy they seem really happy when they come if you've ever been in an eyfs classroom they're just it's just a bundle of energy and positivity if you ever need cheering up (laughs) You just need to come and immerse yourself in the <laughs> in 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 the vibe of an EYFS classroom. Mm. But equally, the you know that process they go through with the eleven plus and they come out at the other end. Often, the last two terms at year six, again, you know, they are they are full of a sense of achievement and full of and right and right and proud of their achievement and rightly so because they. You know, I say this all the time. It's the first time children, I think, really earn something themselves. They they earn it through their own hard work. Mm. You know, they start, mm. you know, well, I mean, the whole process of, of coming to our school is working towards year seven, but it becomes really real for children around year five. And then, mm. and the doubt set in and then they, they work really hard and they achieve, you know, they, they, they get their places and they, you know they they are rightly proud of it and i think 
you know, going mm. back to our, where we started some of our conversation about optimism, you know, that, that helps them develop that optimistic mindset. You know, I can do this if I, if I work really hard. So yes, mm. they're definitely happiest. They're definitely happy at that point. I don't know, you know, my children are just starting the, the whole secondary. Well, one's halfway through it. One's just started. Yeah. Interestingly, they both, they both identified year seven as being a really good year. Interesting. That's good. Because they said they had more freedom mm. than they had when they were in the prep school. <laughs> mm. Mm. Equally, do you think that there's a tendency of the younger one to follow, almost to follow the attitude of the older one? You know, the, you know, the older sibling did this and felt this. The older sibling said that year seven was great when they got to the end of year seven. Therefore, the younger sibling, when they get to year seven, they've already going back to our earlier conversation about expectation, actually they're feeling more optimistic about it, but maybe wrongly so their expectation is, is, is too high, but it seems to have worked out for both of yours in year seven. I think um, in this particular situation, I mean, I'm, literally we were driving home last night and they, they, I don't know, they started up this conversation. I don't know how, I can't even remember how it started, but for my, my eldest, it was because he, he just said, oh, well, I, because they went through, um, they, they went through from seven. So he said, oh, I went through with my friends and we had more freedom and you didn't have the pressure of the 11 plus. So it's the first time and, and GCSEs were a long way away. So there's just this period mm. of freedom, no pressure of exams on the horizon. And I've got friends that I already are well established. And so he was very, he was very certain that that was his happiest period. Mm. For my daughter, I don't think... She, I think she just chimed in going, oh, yes, the freedom of year seven is brilliant. She was loving the independence that was expected of her and the freedom. So but I, so I don't quite know. Thinking back on it, her answer was slightly skewed by his. But yeah. Ralph, you mentioned about reinventing earlier on in this podcast recording when children go from year six to year seven. I actually remember hearing a podcast episode by, I think it was on Diary of a CEO, Stephen Bartlett, where he interviewed Jimmy Carr. And Jimmy Carr was talking about how, when he was younger, I think he was a bit of a, uh, a, a bit of a, a, an unpopular geeky kind of person when he was younger, if I'm allowed to say that still, I'm not sure. But then he changed schools and he realized that because nobody knew him in the new school, he could actually choose to be whoever he wanted to be. And so he did that and he changed completely. What are your thoughts on, on that kind of thing when children change from one school to another? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really important. I remember in a similar way hearing... I mean, this is many moons ago at the start of the face of Facebook becoming a thing, but people saying children moving from schools to university would not be able to reinvent themselves. You know, they'd, you, you couldn't present yourself in one way because everyone would go, well, hang on, I've just looked at your profile. But I think it's really important, particularly, you know, if you can imagine a situation. So the, the, the best situation will be you have a group of established friends, you move up to school. It's all very easy. Now, that, that's great. That makes that transition very easy. My point about, well, OK, you're going to have to do that at university and you'll have no experience, I think still stands. But it certainly makes the transition really easy, but you don't get to grow in that moment. But actually, there is the opposite version where you may have not had the opportunity to make friends. You may not have had, you know, you've already put yourself in the pecking order socially or academically. And you have and that self-image of yourself transitions into your secondary education straight away and I, and I think that is quite a limiting 
situation and quite a quite a risk. Ralph, tell me about some of the different events that happened through the school journey. I'm thinking of events that are locked into particular year groups that only happen in that year group. We have starting at the youngest age, we have the EYFS nativity. Uh, then in year two, they'll do they'll have the they'll do a play. Uh, they do a play in year four, which is the Christmas play, and then uh, in year six, they'll uh, perform again, um, which at the moment we've been running through various Shakespeare plays. Also, they will have gone on the various school trips. Every every year group goes on a number of school trips, whether it's the EYFS who will go and post their letters to um, Father Christmas every Christmas. <laughs> Um, <laughs> this year done in the snow to, for extra authenticity fantastic, um, and paperwork for the risk assessments uh, and then <laughs> or whether it's then the residential so we've we've started a year three overnight residential one night over um, one night residential very locally based so that again anybody who has any it's their first night away they're not too far from their parents if they needed to go home or if you know um, it just adds that sort of security uh, then there's the year four trip, which mm. currently we go to PGL. Uh, then uh, five and six, they go on um, alternating places, so to South Downs and to York. But they're all based around curriculum areas. So when we go to York, we look at the Victorian sort of transport. We go to Howith, which was uh, home of the Brontes because they study the Brontes. So we use those trips not only as, as opportunities to gain their own independence, but also to back up some of the, the study we do. Oh, there'll be the various options, you know, the very various opportunities to take part in sort of representing the school at sports. Um, that's something that's been a bit affected over the last couple of years with COVID, but we're getting that back up and running. Um, and then um, the various musical involvement they have in the various spring and summer, no, autumn and spring concerts. So they get chances to do all of that. Plus they get to be on the school council. You know, every year there's uh, a school council member is voted for. Uh, and then the year sixes get to, well, then year five and year six start taking on sort of various um, roles in terms of showing prospective parents around the school during like the open morning. Um, so they get that, that experience to speak to, old, you know, to adults and take on responsibility and then in year six they they have their monitoring duties and they they get to be the the responsible role models in the school and you know read to the younger children and to take part in in that so that's a lovely mm. that's a lovely part of the journey and then we, in recent years we've had the year sixes write letters to the incoming lower foundation pupils oh, lovely. about their mm. about their experience and what they can expect and passing mm. on their wisdom of how to make the most of it I love that. It really struck me when you're talking there about those different events that happen in that everyday life at a prep school can be contributing factors to your overall happiness. But when children are older or when children become adults and they look back on their prep school years and they think about the times where they were really happy, they probably think about those events, even though the happiness that they experience on those events, the events being great on their own, but but it's the everyday happiness that contributes to it, isn't it? I think so. I mean, you, you I, I don't know. Again, you sort of think back to your own experience and you think I was happy at X school or I was unhappy. The actual memories will be very specific and tend to be either the school trips or the plays or the mm. assemblies mm. that you did yeah. or whatever it was. So, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. 
But if you're unhappy in school and you go on a, on a trip to Disneyland or something like that, it's not going to be a happy trip to Disneyland because you're still not happy. But it's the fact that when you look back, you don't think to yourself, oh, my time at school was, was lovely. I remember in year four, we did a maths lesson and we did addition and subtraction because, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's not one of those memorable moments. But it's everyday things like that that contribute. You haven't got a memory of nailing a particular maths lesson or? <laughs> I do have a memory actually of a maths lesson when I was at school. Uh, I think I was in year seven or year eight, actually. I was playing with a calculator the night before and I thought to myself, uh, square, what's the square root of 20? And I looked at this number on the calculator and I had a strange memory back then where I, I could look at a number and memorize it fairly quickly. Anyway, the very next day we started learning about square roots in a maths lesson and the teacher explained that the square root of um, uh, square root of, of 16 would be four and that the square root of 25 would be five. And, and, and I wasn't paying attention. And the teacher said to me, Simon, what are you doing? And, and I said, nothing. So she said, right, I'm going to test you. What do you think? I said, she said, I've explained the square root of 16, the square root of 25. What do you think the square root of something like 20 might be? And I just thought, this is my moment. This is my moment. <laughs> she had a calculator in her hands. And of course, it's not a straightforward number. And I looked at her square in the eye and I said, 4.472135955. And that is the actual number because I still remember it. And her jaw hit the floor because she's looking at her calculator, thinking to herself, we've got a genius in the class. <laughs> and he's I, done I did nothing. up to her later on. <laughs> and he's, he's done, done nothing, nothing yeah. up to this point. He's just sat there. <laughs> uh, so it's not a useful skill at all to know what the square root of 20 is, but... um. But nevertheless, it did make me laugh. And was your was your time at school generally happy? It was, yeah. And 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 also, I, I did change schools at the end of year six, and I joined year seven in a new school and went through that uncomfortableness, starting a new school. You know, the awkwardness of the first day, the first week, the first month. But you know, actually, children are, are pretty resilient when it comes to that sort of change because we learn and develop from it, don't we? I imagine knowing you, it didn't take you too long to find a. A friendship group yeah no it, it didn't take long no i'm 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 well going back to earlier a, an optimistic kind of person so so yeah, yeah. no it was enjoyable I, I enjoyed all of it no it took it took me <laughs> it took me about four years to find a friendship group <laughs> uh, i spent the first year on my own pretty much at lunch times and then uh yeah managed to find another lost soul for the second year and gradually oh. <laughs> and gradually it built from there <laughs> but interestingly, I'm still friends with a core of those people that I went to oh, school. Oh, well, there with. we are. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I didn't, 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 you know, I wasn't particularly unhappy. Mm -hmm. It was probably because I was pessimistic and just thought, oh, I hate people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably doesn't make yourself that sort of like a attractive character to hang around. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Ralph, any final thoughts on on the school journey? Not just at Snaresbrook, but in general, you know, the journey that children go through. Do you know, the first thing I thought of when you said that was the word that came to mind was privilege, because it really is an absolute privilege to watch these children grow. Even the other day, you know, this, people came around the corner on their, I think their, their scooter, and they were miles, and they're tiny, they're a really young child, and they, they were sort of what appeared to be miles ahead of their parents. It was because there was a hedge, so you couldn't quite see the parents in... And it was like, wow, what a, you know, what a, what a privilege to watch these young humans grow and become who they are. 
and when you get to see that all the way through you know to 11 and you see the confidence that they have and you you chat to them about things and they 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 offer their thoughts on the world that you think wow i'm not sure i would have had that thought when i was your age um you mm. know or they mm. they perform something or they do something or yeah or even the christmas we had you know a pupil stood on stage and you know and started you know acting their part and it was like wow where did that come from you know they just in these moments mm. just suddenly you know break free from the chrysalis and uh no it's uh you know i sometimes particularly on residentials think wow i'm so lucky to see this and your parents would love to have been there you know your parents should have been here in this moment it was a shame that they didn't get to see mm. this and mm. you know you know i was lucky enough to see it yeah no it's privilege i think it's 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 uh and maybe that's where my optimism comes from because it's just heartwarming seeing you think to yourself actually i know when we look at the news and you think crikey what's the future of the world going to be like but when you mm -hmm. when you're surrounded by all these young you know humans with all their optimism and their their yeah mm -hmm. it just thinks no the world will be fine the world will be fine um, we've got a new a new generation coming through. Yeah, yeah. We can take reassurance in those children and the happy smiles and the beautiful sounds of the playground that we can hear in the background in your office there again. Oh, yeah, I remember to turn the tape on to play the sound. <laughs> Nicely done. Well done. Okay, Ralph, suggest we bring this to a close. If anyone wants to get in touch with the school, I guess they can just get in touch through the website or give the school a call. Absolutely. Yes, the website uh, snaresbrookprep.org or if you want to email office at snaresbrookprep.org. All good ways to get in touch. Fabulous. Well, thank you for being here. Thanks for talking to us today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Simon. Have a good day. So that was Ralph Dalton, head teacher at school, and me, I'm Simon, talking about the journey that children go through, along with other things such as the square root of 20. As always, do get in touch with the school if you have any questions and they'll always be happy to help you. Now, our next episode is coming out soon. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this one. Don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.